0: This is IEDA In Your Ear, the podcast for members of the Indiana Economic Development Association. I'm your host, Lee Llewellyn. For this podcast, we're going to be talking about the Rural Economic Development Model. This is an activity that is being deployed currently in 38 Indiana counties and is a project that is being pioneered in Indiana through a unique partnership being led through IEDA. With me today are Connie Neininger and Stephen Eastridge. And Connie is the president of CN Consulting, but was the economic development director in White County when that county was gaining momentum as the renewable energy capital of Indiana, And Connie also helped pioneer the economic development role within the Indiana State Department of Agriculture. It was when Connie was in that role with the uh, Indiana State Department of Ag uh, that IEDA, the Department of Ag, uh, first began partnering to create and launch the rural economic development model that we're gonna talk about today. And Connie is now engaged under the auspices of the IEDA Foundation to facilitate the rural economic development model in five regions around the state. And Stephen Eastridge is the executive director of the the Jasper County Economic Development. He grew up in Northwest Indiana, graduated from Purdue University and worked in community and economic development for the city of Cincinnati before returning to Indiana for his current role in Jasper County. So Stephen is leading the rural economic development effort in his region and is currently serving as a member of the IEDA Board of Directors, and I'm just really thrilled and appreciative uh, that you both would take time to be with me today. So, um, Connie, we'll start with you. A number of years ago, IEDA, uh, the Indiana State Department of Ag, Indiana Farm Bureau, Purdue Center for Regional Development and a few other entities came together to try to address a need in Indiana's rural, Indiana's rural communities. So start by explaining the situation that we were seeing in those rural counties that brought us together in the first place.
1: Okay, well, first of all, thank you, Lee, for inviting us to join you here today. Um, there were a couple of things that really started driving us uh, to the rural economic development model. The first was the observation that most of the new economic development projects that were locating in Indiana over several years were selecting the urban and metropolitan areas and rarely was a state project placed in a rural community. You know, so we realized there was something missing there we needed to help support these rural communities. The second key observation occurred through the Indiana State Department of Agriculture. About that time, ISDA initiated a study of the dairy industry in Indiana. Through the analysis of the dairy farms and the flows of raw milk leaving the state and the finished product coming back into the state, we realized that we had even greater leakages in the food supply chain. That dairy study showed that we had 4 million pounds of raw milk leaving our state every day to be processed elsewhere. We had a gap in the process uh, that we felt we needed to fill uh, in the form of value-added processing we realized that there were more leakages in other sectors of the food supply chain and that our rural communities had those key assets that could be leveraged to fill those gaps and support economic development in the rural regions. Most economic developers focus on manufacturing and trying to attract the first and second tier suppliers. When they're chasing those smokestacks, the economic multiplier is good, but it can be much greater when we support one of the largest industries in Indiana, agriculture. So when we help to support the supply chain in agriculture, the economic impact is two to three times greater. And especially if we can focus on the leakages or what's leaving our state to be processed elsewhere. And so that was really the underlying reason for developing the rural economic development model.
0: So, what would success if if a county or a region is successful uh, in in achieving sort of that vision or or what what we're talking about? What would that look like? How would they see what? How would they see success? What would it look like?
1: It would mean that the finished products that we are putting on our tables today were even grown or raised here in our regions processed, stored, transported, and sold all right here within the region that we're making sure we are filling the whole supply chain from beginning to end. And if we can cut out just a small percentage of those leakages, we are talking about millions of dollars that can come into these rural communities. So
0: Stephen, you've been an advocate in your region, and I think you've been, you've taken the lead in the regional effort up there. Uh, Jasper County is a, is a rural county. Why are you involved in this and what do you hope is going is to be an outcome for your county?
2: Sure. And thanks for having me be a part of the conversation, Lee. So I think to understand why I've been such a adamant um, supporter of this since I came to Jasper County, um, I have. To, it goes back to when I first started with uh, Michigan City, working at the EDCMC there, um, and all of that came out of research I did as a senior in college. And what we did very quickly was prepared a cluster analysis for air and gas compressor manufacturers for Port County. Um, that was really the entry of my interest in the economic development. And at its root, this is what we're doing for agriculture. We're doing a cluster analysis for our region. And so for me, the ag strategy gets back to what built my interest in economic development and just makes a lot of sense to me. Um, When I think about why it makes sense to Jasper County, uh, I look at my county, but I look at what other rural communities across Indiana are facing, considering that 70 of the 92 counties are considered rural in some form, we're declining in population, our major industry sectors are agriculture. And what we're doing as a state and what we've become very good at as a state is manufacturing. If I focus on that manufacturing as an economic developer in a rural community, it becomes very hard to do my job effectively. It becomes very hard to create successes and wins for my community. Um, What the ag strategy I think in my mind does is presents an opportunity to move away from the narrative of jobs created all the time um, and also hone in on building a relationship between manufacturing and food production or agriculture processes in general, and find where the linkages between those two are. So that way I'm not chasing opportunities that don't make sense for the workforce within my community or what the industries already are that exist in my community and find a more sustainable way to drive the ag economy in our local communities a little more further. I said communities way too much time, too many times there. Um, The idea is just building a more sustainable Plan to grow our county, and I think that's what makes the most amount of sense when I look at it. So, if you we were
0: going to look at a year or two or three from 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 this point and through this process, uh, what would what would an outcome look like? What would success look like if you when you get to the end of this process?
2: When I think about the first, so I I sort of view the ag strategy in a couple of iterations, and Connie and I have talked about this before as well in this first iteration what we're talking about the most the most right now you know, the you know the industrial side of this what I see the outcome being is that when something leaves Jasper County uh, it goes to the grocery store to be consumed uh, wherever that product is and and building economic opportunities throughout the supply chain of that product being made so that um, products are sourced within our, our economic region and then when products leave, our six county region, they go to be consumed by the end user. And I think for, for, you know, for looking at the six counties we're working with, that makes a lot of sense. Just thinking about the geography of where we're located, you know, smack dab in the middle of I-65 between Chicago and Indianapolis, there's a lot of people to feed there. And I think the idea is how do we do that and create economic opportunity? The second piece of this, and I don't have as much details on what this looks like, but I think... Connie kind of hit on this: is there's a whole local foods opportunity here where we can create economic sustainability uh, through food production, not just and not just in the ways that it gets sent to the store. Uh, one of the things that coming to a rural community, having left the city of Cincinnati, that I find really startling is that many rural communities across the country are food deserts. That that there's that's a to me that's a problem, and that the communities that grow our food have poor access to the food. Um, So, you know, what I see in the long range of this is improving um, access to food, fresh food, farmers markets, you know, local food co-ops, things like that, that can be on the back end of this, that gets to some of the things that our economic development profession are just now starting to talk about in terms of community development, wealth building, things like that. And I think that centers around food for rural communities. Okay. Thanks, Stephen.
0: Uh, Connie, I'm gonna pull you back. To, to one thing, when you talked about the dairy strategy that was launched um, by the Indiana State Department of Ag, um, you didn't do sort of the, the, the final outcome of part of that, um, that I think was part of us uh, getting onto the rural economic development strategy you talked about. Um, that that you had identified that there were four million pounds of milk that were leaving the state every day, that you documented and cataloged really the asset. But then, what was one of the outcomes of having having gone through that process and developing a dairy strategy? Okay.
1: Yes, as you mentioned, we did catalog the the milk flows. We saw what was leaving the state, what was coming back in, as far as finished product. And with that, four million pounds of raw milk leaving the state, we identified our gap was processing. You know, we had farmers dumping milk down the drain because they couldn't get it to a marketplace at that point. And so we said we needed to attract more processing uh, with. Into the state. And when you're talking about food processing, processors like to be located close to their raw material. And so, by having the map of all the dairy farms in the industry, that really helped us say, This is where the dairy industry should be located. And so, we started working first with our existing companies, our existing dairy processing, and say, Okay, could you expand? Could you use more? raw milk? What could you, what are your needs? And then through that conversation, those conversations with several companies, we attracted the attention of Walmart, who was looking to build their first ever dairy processing. And I think that's an important point um, as we work through this process is if we are doing things right, working with our existing companies, it will attract the attention of new companies into the area. And so we did win that project for Indiana. They built their first ever and the largest dairy processing facility in in the U.S. at that point in time. And so we were originally a four million pound exporter of raw milk. After all the expansions occurred within our current dairy industries and the Walmart dairy processing Uh, facility came online. We are now approximately a 3 million pound net importer of raw milk. So it turned that supply chain around completely to where we are providing more of the value here within the state, more of the raw product, more of the processing, which really helps those rural communities. And that's what we want to do with the rural economic development model not with just dairy, but with every type of product that we grow or raise here in the state. We want to identify where is the gap? You know, what are we sending outside of the state to be processed elsewhere? Can we provide it here? Or if we have a current food processor today that needs a certain crop, can we grow it here? And those are the questions we ask through this process.
0: And that's why I wanted to get back to that Walmart story, because that as we were thinking through um, what we were going to do, that really became sort of the catalyst story in helping us think about um, what is grown in the state that we are sending someplace else. And um, it was a tour of a different dairy facility that a number of us looked at one another and said, you know what? I mean, they may be making, you know, cottage cheese and ice cream here, but it's a manufacturing facility uh, they're, they're, It's it's manufacturing. We have other opportunities besides transmissions uh, and auto parts to try to bring manufacturing. And I think that was really um, the work you were doing then at ISDA that resulted in the Walmart facility was was part of that aha moment. And then last year, uh, we uh, put together and received a grant request and received um, a grant from the U.S. Economic Development Administration uh, through the IEDA Foundation uh, that has enabled us to deploy the rural economic development model in four regions and a separate grant from EDA then was really deployed for the region that Stephen is involved in. And so we now have uh, combined in those five regions, 38 counties that are working through this process and are at various stages. So I want to talk with each of you then about about those steps uh, in terms of how the regions are organizing themselves, Stephen, how you are working within your county uh, to work with some of the the, um, ag assets through the farmers. Uh, and so let's let's talk about what are some of the the basic steps uh, that you go through um, as you're starting to deploy the rural economic development model back to you Connie since you are facilitating all of that Stephen I would like you as Connie is talking about uh, some of the steps for you to talk about how you are actually implementing some of those steps in your county and and so hopefully we can, tag team the responses back and forth. So, Connie?
1: Okay. Well, first and foremost, I want everyone to realize that this is a process. It's not a once and done. Um, And we start with data you know, so the data is driving our decisions. We first need to know what we have within the regions. So we do a cluster analysis, as Stephen mentioned, and you know, one of the things that he likes to work with because we are not looking at just agriculture. We want to look at those other industries, such as transportation, such as glass and ceramics. How many of our agricultural prod products are packaged in glass. So there's, you know, sometimes we don't think of these other industries as supporting agriculture. So first and foremost, we do the cluster analysis for the region. We analyze all the assets. We look at the current industries in the region. And then we take a look at what they call shift share, which is the number of employees and the trends. And then the leakages, How much raw material are they bringing into this industry sector? And how much is coming from outside of the region? And that's what we want to try to, to focus on is the leakages. And then we identify the actual companies within those sectors. We will call on those companies to gather even more specific information about their supply chains And then we look at the agricultural assets that can support that particular sector. And the best thing is, and I'm going to sidetrack a little bit here, we have a great resource that's available to everybody out there called the Ag Asset Maps that are available on the Rural Indiana Stats that shows everything that is grown or raised, all the livestock, all the crops that are grown and raised here in Indiana. And that is a Huge tool that we can use through this process.
0: Well, let me let, let me stop it for a minute then, and and lateral over to Stephen, and just talk about. So, Stephen, you've been going through some of these steps. So, talk about um, what your experience has been uh, in, for for Jasper County, just in, as you've gone through some of those initial steps.
2: Yeah, I was perfectly content letting Connie go. She's 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 the expert, right? But. So where I think, you know, for our LIDOs, the role that we really play in this and what I think makes any strategy good is data sets are imperfect, no matter how up to date they are. And where I think so far in the process in our region where the lidos have been most impactful is bringing sort of the anecdotal understanding of companies um, and industries that exist within our communities. And being able to pair that with the data, so and and that's really been a lot of the back and forth with the Purdue team so far. And our strategy is okay. This is what the data says within you know the the sets of databases that Purdue has access to. What what does it actually represent? And then what do we as Lidos know? Because um, we, we should have a really good understanding of. Um, you know, what happens within our facilities within our county. And a good example of this is we were having an email back and forth exchange about a company that is located in both um, my county and another county um, owned by by the same parent company. But the the operations that they have in those two um, buildings are very different. And so it's worthwhile that we talk to both of them. Um, In some of the counties, we have companies that do the same thing. Or, or mostly the same thing. And so it, does it make sense that if each county um, interview them and, and surveyed them separately. So was, I think so far a lot of what we have been doing from a Lido standpoint is anecdotally verifying that the data that we're getting in makes sense and then we keep moving forward um, with a plan that doesn't end up falling on the shelves because we never checked it along the way. Uh, and from a Lido standpoint, that sounds like a lot of work if you're just doing it by yourself. But what makes this really a lot easier and more efficient is the way we've structured it is we have our team of Lidos who are driving the project forward. We're meeting every two weeks, um, talking about the data, talking about progress. And then we go back as Lidos and we have a team that's our county team and sort of representative of um. A group of people within the county that have an interest in seeing agriculture grow in the same ways that we do, that we can bounce our information off of, that we can fact check the things that we're hearing or the things that we're saying, and really sort of spreading the workload across that that county team. And that makes it a lot more efficient, especially in the data analysis, because, you know, I, for example, I have a county commissioner who's very involved with Farm Bureau. He's, a, he's a, you know a farmer. He's way more in touch with the agricultural community than what I am. Um, And so it's easy for me to say I need contacts to these two or three companies, whatever they are, primarily in the ag sector, go to him, get that information, come back and be able to skip a few steps in reaching out and making contacts. So I think, you know, from the Lido standpoint, that's what a lot of it has been so far is verifying what the data says and then working with our county team to get all the facts straight. So when we're in a a group meeting together, we're moving forward more efficiently. So, Stephen, uh, does that, I wonder if
0: uh, having those individuals involved with you at the county level, does that help build a little bit more uh, support for your organization and maybe a little bit better understanding because they're engaged in the process? And so you do think that's going to help them Mm -hmm. better understand just the economic development process that you do? Uh, because normally you would be something you might go off and do on your own, but I guess with some of those folks actually doing some of the groundwork, uh, does that, do you think that long-term may help them better understand kind of what you do and why?
2: Yeah, I think so. I I definitely feel privileged in my county in terms of our relationship with agriculture and the ag community. You know, early on, um, I started trying to loop members you know kind of pillar members of the ag community into our organizations we have a couple of board members on on my board that represent the ag community and we've spent a lot, i've spent a lot of time since i got here in 2017 trying to understand their needs doing things like helping helping permit you know hog operations that may not feel like economic development to someone in a more urban county but that's a business that's spending money and if i'm going to help someone else get permitting I might as well help that farmer get permitting in our, my county as well so so we've done some things over the last few years nothing short of like crawling into combines and having conversations to show them that we're willing to meet them where they are in agriculture to to help understand their needs so i feel like we're a little ahead of the curve and some like some of our some of the counties that we're, that are working with us don't have that same connection or, or maybe don't want to because, you know, they don't, you know, manufacturing is the way. And so, you know, on our core team, one of our, our representatives is from the extension office in that county who has a good relationship with extension or excuse me, with agriculture. Um, but I definitely think there are still pockets of the agriculture community who have no idea what economic development is. And probably if they do, it's that age old economic development sees green fields as development opportunity, not as economic providing um, property that right? they're already in use. And so I think it's definitely can be a bridge between the agricultural community and the economic development community that we're not at odds. We want similar things. We just need to coordinate and talk more about how we're doing those things.
0: And so Connie, uh, I think that gets right at the essence of again, where, where this process was developing was really unlocking sort of the economic opportunity that is inherent in agriculture. And as you know, I often uh, try to dissuade the discussion about uh, talking about agriculture as commodities, because that, I think, creates a mindset that it is a very passive asset that we grow and then ship someplace else for people to add value. So, so back to that sort of local mobilization and the leveraging of those assets uh, in terms of looking at um, uh, the data, trying to understand through that local outreach, um, you know, what is out there? What are the needs? uh, Where are things going? So talk about, you know, what that process looks like as you identify in a county, what's being grown, uh, who, are, who are the farmers, what is the ag business, then what's part of the process then in terms of working with, understanding, leveraging mm, all of those things that are in the county?
1: Okay. Well, first of all, I think Stephen made a very good point that, you know, farmland is not a greenfield waiting to be developed it already has a purpose, and that is to grow the raw material that we need for our food supply. So, you know, perfect example of, of what we need to consider and how urban and metropolitan economic developers look at agriculture completely different than the economic developers in rural communities. And one of the key things as we're talking about agriculture that is could really make or break a project such as this or any type of project are the policies and permitting that each county has in place. And as as Stephen mentioned that, you know, he likes to help uh, an animal operation get their permits to expand because that is economic development in rural communities. But if we decide, and I'm gonna use the dairy industry as an example again, if we decide we want to expand dairy processing, well, guess what? That means we're going to need more cows. Well, are the permits and policies in place in that community that will support the raw product, just like they want to support the finished processing? And so those that's a key step that as we drill down into the data, and identify the targets, we need to make sure the policies that are in place in that community will support. We don't want to go out there and have a hot prospect online for, and I'm just going to use an example, grain processing just to find out the county's not going to allow any more grain processing. So those policies and permitting reviews are going to be very important. Also, infrastructure. You know, the infrastructure that is needed for a dairy processor, a cheese processor, a grain processor, or a livestock processing facility is completely different than the infrastructure that is needed for an automotive manufacturer. So we need to know what we're going to target, and we need to then make sure that we have the right infrastructure in place before we start promoting that for our communities. You know, the kiss of death is to try to attract a new company or to work with a company to expand just to find out they're not even allowed in your county. So we wanna make sure that is not going to be an issue as we proceed uh, down this process. And as I mentioned, first and foremost, we do want to support our existing companies. So if we find a target that we're going after, we're going to look to those existing companies first to see if they can expand. And then if not, then we will try to fill those gaps. And again, if there's an existing company that needs a particular raw material, we will want to work with our farmers to grow that and provide it there locally. And so that really is how we're going to target in uh, through the process. We don't wanna be all things to all people. We found out that just like in the dairy industry, it's better to be very targeted, to know what you have and to know what you want. And that helps us alleviate the disruptions in the supply chain, as we've seen during the pandemic.
0: So let's focus on that supply chain question because I think that goes back to and and when we say leakage, we're really talking about economic leakage. It is the degree to which um, we are we are missing and economic opportunity within our existing companies. So uh, both of you spend a minute uh, talking about, you know, what does that look like as you are trying to track and understand the economic leakage in your county or in your region? And and why does that make a difference in terms of, again, sort of the economic footprint? Um, uh, you, You touched upon it. But I think people get confused uh, just about the concept. So if we could dig into that just a little bit deeper. Um, and and it is it is attached back to the supply chain. So talk a little bit about what is economic leakage and why does it matter?
1: Okay. And, and Stephen, if it's okay, I'll take the first shot at this. Sure, go um, ahead the the leakage says how much of the raw inputs that are needed within a certain process are coming from outside of the region and we so give have me an know. example
0: so give uh, so, so pick an example tell a story if you can
1: okay so um, I will use the dairy example because we've used it so much here mm-hmm. but um, for our dairy processors if they need, you know, 3 million pounds of raw milk, and they're bringing it in from the state of Michigan, that's a leakage for Indiana. We want to try to supply that, all that raw material from right here within the state of Indiana, if possible.
0: Well, and you also, then you talked about earlier in that when you were talking about the clusters, that not all of the clusters were necessarily agriculture. And so you touched upon glass. So, so for example, if the, if a glass container for milk, or even, even the, the cartons are produced someplace else. So it's not just always the raw material, but it's a lot of the collateral supplies. It may be the packaging. It's looking at uh, all of the things that those companies may be, may be purchasing and if they're purchasing it outside of the region or outside of the state, that's a lost economic opportunity. Is that what you're getting at?
1: Correct. So it could be, like you mentioned, the raw product itself. It could be the material that, uh, that is being provided to process that raw product. So it could be the equipment is coming from outside of the state. It could be the trucks that will be transporting it. You know, the company might be located outside of the state. It could be the gas that they're putting in those trucks to transport. It could be the cardboard that they're packaging in or the glass or ceramics. And so when we look at that whole supply chain, it's everything that has to touch that product from its very beginning to the time it is going to be set down on our kitchen table. So it could even be the grocery stores, the wholesalers, anything in between from beginning to end that might touch. It could also include the workforce. So for example, if we know we can provide more of the products within, if we can cut out some of that leakage, where they're not paying extra money to transport that product from miles and miles away, maybe they can use some of those economic uh, dollars to retrain and provide higher incomes to their workforce. That is part of the whole supply chain that we are looking at.
2: When I I think about it, I I, I, I have a tendency to simplify things maybe too much, but um, I think about it as building vertically integrated communities. You know, you go back at the early 1900s, much of business in that time was about building vertically integrated companies to reduce costs. Um, it's, I think it's that same idea. Um, just thinking about it regionally. how do we vertically integrate um, co- uh, processes, companies, products within a whole region um, so that maybe in the next County over the the raw materials are grown, and then it moves to the next county and becomes the next step in that. And then when it leaves our region, it goes to be consumed. You know, what's happened over so many of the last decades since the 70s is that low cost of petroleum has really caused our economy nationally and locally to disperse because now it it is cheaper to send it to the next state over or two states over uh, because gas is so cheap. Uh, what's happening in, in agriculture and in a lot of industries is that the cost of petroleum is no longer cheap, and it is a big burden to to you know uh, consumers and and producers trying to find ways to manufacture product. Um, what we're trying to do is build a more sustainable local economy that reduces the amount of miles traveled between steps and ultimately makes it more efficient uh, for both the company producing it and for the consumer utilizing it on the back end.
0: Well, and I think the the other part of that, right along with what you said, Stephen, for the farmers, the producers themselves, if they are not paying to ship their raw product Mm -hmm. three states away, then that is a greater profit opportunity for them, in addition to if we are adding value by taking the milk and making ice cream uh, or if we're taking you know corn and we're making tortillas whatever it may be we're adding we're uh, we're obviously creating better profit margin for those local producers but we're also adding more value that then again imports more dollars into the local community and I think that is the synergy that we're trying to create I think overall with this process. So, so where are you um, now, Stephen? in your, in your regional process, where are you in yours? These, this process we think can take a year and a half to two years. Um, so where are you Stephen? in your process, Connie, where are some of the other regions around the state? Stephen, we'll start with you. Where, where are you in your process at this point?
2: I think we're right in the middle of the local company outreach, the surveying portion of this. Um, You know, I think we're hoping to, we're going to wrap that up at the end of, of May. And I did want to touch on this because I think it's important for other Lidos, maybe Lidos in some of these other regions to know. So sort of what some of this is, because I have talked to people around the state and some of the stuff I've heard is, you know, just don't have time for this or this is just so much extra work and, and, you know, just the way I feel about it is if we plan this right, it really isn't more work than what you would do in a normal year. You know, knowing that these were coming, one of the things that I did was sort of cycled up my BRE visits in a way that this year, who I needed to hit was about 75% of the list that I need to do for my company outreach for this strategy. So I plan on just sort of focusing in all my BRE visits in a two month period, making it very ag centric, um, and just checking that box earlier on in the year and doing the normal amount of work that I would do any other year. So, I, you know, I think that um, and we I even heard this within our group of leaders in the region is that, you know, I don't have time for all these visits. This is so much extra work. And it is a lot of work, one. But um, I, I think that speaks to the importance of why we're doing it. But then, two, if with the proper amount of planning from, you know, like my position, it doesn't have to be. Any more work than what we would normally do in economic development nowadays? So much of it is business retention and expansion. This should probably be a process in so many of these local offices already um, that it really shouldn't be that you know that far fetched to think that you know what we're really asking people is twelve or fifteen company visits for the year. We're just going to concentrate that. So you know, how do we knock that out? Um, can you budget time? And other parts of the year to kind of cover some of the stuff that maybe you just push for a couple of months. Um, that's really where we are right now. We spent a lot of time ironing out the data sets. I think we went back and forth with Purdue PCRD a lot. Um, and part of that is us being a little ahead of the rest of the regions and trying to understand what these data sets look like. I would like to think that, you know, the four of the regions might have it just a a smidge easier at looking at some of the data because we've sort of bumped into a ton of walls along the way. Um, But that is part of the fun of sort of leading the charge on everyone's behalf. And um, so I think right now we're in a big push to get everything, all the data ready to be analyzed and then come to the summer, we'll we'll actually enter that data analysis from our local companies, will do the leakage analysis and start to figure out what this map of supply chain looks like for our region.
1: Awesome. Well, and and I want to uh, first of all thank Stephen because he's right. The, the Kearsney region has been our lead region. They have been our guinea pig. <laughs> they have helped us uh, work through the process, and and it has been great. Uh, the other four regions, uh, they. We're behind about three or four months from getting started because of the delay on the grant um, But I think they're they're working hard to catch up. Some of the regions meet twice a month, Some are meeting just once a month. Um, most of them have completed what we call the drill down where they've analyzed all the uh, clusters within their regions and they've targeted three to five, sectors that they really wanna focus on. And so we're now starting to get the company lists and having these conversations like Stephen talked about is what do you mean I have to call on these companies? So those are the conversations we're starting in these regions and, and trying to work to make it easier for them. Purdue has been great about um, putting our surveys online And so, again, analyzing those surveys, we have one focus on just agribusiness, and then we have a general business survey, uh, depending on what companies they are calling on. Um, And then as they're calling on these companies over the next few months, uh, gathering that data, we'll also be working internally to analyze the zoning ordinances, the policies and permittings within these regions, and starting to look at some of the infrastructure that's out there today. So they're all moving along well. Um, I, I think it's exciting uh, to, to see the enthusiasm that's starting to grow. At first they were like, what are we doing? But it, I think it's starting to sink in with some of the regions for sure.
0: And I just, you know, uh, it's important to note that um, Indiana is really pioneering this effort. Uh, You touched upon it, but I wanna go back and talk about the Ag Asset Maps. Uh, These can be accessed through the Rural Indiana Stats website and you just Google that phrase, Rural Indiana Stats, uh, and you will get to those maps. What is important about that is that when we started talking about this process, and we, we wanted to access the uh, agriculture census data, which is the, you know, the information about everything that's grown in the state of Indiana. What we got were stacks and stacks and stacks of computer printouts that absolutely no one knew how to, to read and work through. And because of our great partnership with the Purdue Center for Regional Development, PCRD, They were able to take all of those data and create some very user-friendly maps that allow you to visually see where all of Indiana's agricultural products are grown at the county level, uh, to see it on a map, to see it in the size of bubbles. And that too is also right now unique to the state of Indiana to have access uh, to those data, just for the state of Indiana, in that graphic uh, form, to be able to get a visual sense of, you know, where 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 are we growing wheat? You know, where is the concentration of turkeys and ducks? And um, and and I always like to look and see, uh, you know, where is the emu capital of Indiana? And I will tell you that it has gravitated from Sullivan County to Johnson County in the last five years. So, you know, uh, you, uh, other counties are going to have to keep up. What haven't we talked about in terms of the, the rural economic development model that you think it's important that we get out before, uh, before we close?
1: Well, Lee, uh, just to uh, piggyback on what you just said about the ag asset maps, Every economic developer should be utilizing those maps if they are working with a food processor in their counties or working on an RFP for food processing. Because that is a great tool that you can give to your companies to say, what raw product do you need? Let's take a look at our map and see where it's at here today. And again, help them identify where they can get their raw product from within the state. So I think that's great. Again, I want to stress that this is a process. It's not going to be a once-and-done ag strategy that's going to sit on the shelf in a binder that they're not going to implement. As, As Stephen mentioned time and time again, the Lido's, their committees, this is a work in progress. And as we complete one phase, you know, we may have to go back and reanalyze again because anytime something changes within the region, that changes the data. So don't look at this as I'm going to be done with it in 18 months and won't have to worry about it again. We want you to continually revisit this information.
2: The only thing I'll say really following up for this, and I'm going to try not to let this be a rabbit hole comment, so bear with me, Lee. But I think that every economic development professional in every rural community, even if you think you don't care about agriculture, should be interested in what this strategy looks like and how it plays out for each of these five regions. If you do economic development in a rural community anywhere, I think you know that there's discrepancy in you know sort of the tools and resources that we have available to us in rural communities, um, legislation, what's being passed for us there's just a discrepancy. I, I, I don't think it's intentional, it's just a reality. Um, but I, I think it's incredibly difficult for rural communities to articulate what our needs are because we don't know them yet. Um, as it, we, you know, the picture continues to evolve and, and what our needs are just very clearly different than what the you know the urban population centers are, just in Indiana alone. And so the way we want to utilize tools and grants and legislation is, is all vastly different than other communities. Um, I think, if nothing else, this strategy and what it looks like in the future and our implementation will make it really clear in the future. we will going back to that policy issue. So is what our policy needs are, what our legislative needs are, what tools do we need to grow our communities, agriculture or not? Um, I think a lot of that is going to come out of this. And so I think if, if you're a rural leader who doesn't think he needs to be thinking about this or he or she doesn't need to be thinking about this, just my, my thoughts are that you absolutely do, because this is going to paint a picture in terms of what our needs are in rural communities for the next decade. And that's just how I feel about it.
0: Well, and I think that mirrors uh, the revelation that we had a number of years ago when we were looking at where projects were going and where they weren't going, that they weren't going to those rural areas. And when we started digging a little bit deeper, it was, you know, as rural areas try to, to mirror what the urban areas are doing. It wasn't working because the, the, the projects that are going to urban areas are not going to go to the rural areas. And so it takes different tools. It takes a different thought. And, um, and, it, and having a unique partnership with groups like the Indiana Farm Bureau, uh, like the Indiana State Department of Agriculture, uh, helped us, I think, all begin to better understand uh, the economic opportunities of agriculture, how it is a business, how we can further help enhance that, and how it creates a unique set of tools and opportunities for those rural communities. So, Stephen, I appreciate and, and uh, just really thank you for your leadership Uh, in helping uh, launch this in your region, but also as you tell the story, and certainly how honored I am that Connie is helping us uh, do this, as she was there when we uh, created the model, uh, was was a huge part of helping us think through all of this. And we're just so honored, uh, Connie, that you're helping us now deploy this in these 38 counties, these five regions. Um, Thank you both. I've been talking today with uh, Connie Neininger, uh, president of CN Consulting, but also now working with us to facilitate uh, the rural economic development model in our five regions, 38 counties, Uh, and Stephen Eastridge, who's the executive director for Jasper County Economic Development and a member of the IEDA board. I want to thank you both for your time, your expertise and your dedication to all of this.
1: Thank you, Lee. Appreciate being here.
2: All the same thing. Thanks, Lee, for, you know, staying with this and being dedicated as well. So thanks, Lee. Thank you both.
0: You've been listening to IEDA In Your Ear, the podcast for members of the Indiana Economic Development Association. This podcast is copyright 2022. by the Indiana Economic Development Association, all rights reserved.